You might find it odd, but on this Easter morning, I want to talk to you about Elijah, the great prophet, and the most famous story about him when he was taken up into heaven in the fiery chariots and the whirlwind. We all know this one. It's a flannel graph classic. Uh, And, you know, when we think about Old Testament stories, this is about as iconic as they get because Elijah was the greatest prophet. I mean, there's lots of prophets. There's a lot of obscure ones, but Elijah is the one that rises to the top. He's the, the bold miracle worker who stood up to wicked King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. He is the one who he brought the hearts of Israel back from the, the brink of turning away from God forever back to faithfulness at Mount Carmel. And, you know, as, as we watch this unfold, we see him with his, his protege, Elisha. And these two guys were very close. They were on the same page together. They both knew what was going to happen, that this was the end for Elijah. And as they went and, and they were haggling over how much of your spirit do I get when you're gone, which is yeah, maybe a little weird to talk about when you're walking someone off to eternity, But he sees, Elisha sees Elijah taken up into heaven. What an amazing thing that must have been. Fire and a whirlwind and and chariots and horses of fire. And as he comes back, he returns to other followers of Elijah's. See, I think there are some connections here between this story and the story of Jesus. Now, Elijah didn't have 12 apostles, but he did have the company of prophets, there's a bunch of guys who followed his lead and looked to him as the main prophet. And much like Jesus, he also had his one guy who was going to take over and continue the work for him after he went up to heaven. And so when Elisha comes back and says, here's what happened, he describes it. They believe him, but these prophets say, well, let's, let's go find him. Where'd he go? He's, He's got to be somewhere. That's something my wife says to me sometimes, like if I lose something. She's like, well, it's got to be somewhere. And I'm like, well, that is technically a true statement. But they're saying he wouldn't just abandon us and people don't just disappear. Let's go and find him. For all we know, God picked him up and dropped him somewhere. Maybe he's by a different brook, like last time, and ravens are feeding him. Maybe he's lost or hurt and he needs to be rescued. Maybe he's dead in which case we need to recover his body and bring it back and honor him with a proper burial. But whatever the case, we're going to go. Let's go find him. And, of course, Elisha says you don't need to bother to do that, but they won't listen. They keep on pushing. You see, Elijah was more than the most famous prophet. He was essentially a personification of their hope of a coming Messiah. From our point of view, looking back, Yeah, Elijah's important, but he's like the foreshadower of the forerunner of the Messiah. He's twice removed. But from where these prophets were sitting, he is their hope. He's the one who saved Israel from falling away completely from God and turning permanently to idols. And to this day, he's held up very highly in Judaism. Last night at Passover Cedars, all over, people left an empty chair for Elijah in Jewish households. And there's talk in rabbinic uh, writings about when Elijah returns. And, and that even kind of permeates the Gospels at certain points. And so with all their hope tied so closely to this guy, the company of prophets says, look, we got 50 men, strong men. We're going to go and we're going to find him. And they wear Elisha down to the point of him being ashamed. And he says, fine, go. You're not going to find anything, but go. For three days, 
they look. Every mountain, every valley, everything, everywhere. For three days, they find nothing. And then they return, and he says, essentially, I told you so. <laughs> Contrast that with Jesus' death and resurrection. For three days, he was dead, at least by the, the Hebrew reckoning, during which nobody did anything. They all just stayed put. Then at the, the dawning of the third day, we find his followers still staying put, locked in the upper room, huddled there, dejected and hopeless, hiding out, hoping no one comes looking for them. No one says to Peter, Peter, you're the leader, right? It's the third day. Remember he said on the third day he'd rise again. Let's go see if it's true. Let's go find him. Let's go look for him. He wouldn't abandon us and just disappear. No, they all sit tight. And then those who do actually go and leave the house, the women go to the wrong place. Now, credit where credit is due, they actually go somewhere. And granted, this is the last place they saw him, so it's a logical place to start. But still the angels offer this, this mild rebuke or, or perhaps a loving admonition. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. He is risen. I, I snuck that one in. He is risen. So they go to the wrong spot. He's not there. That is literally as close as anyone gets to going out to find the risen Christ. That's it. They go back and, and then that's the end of the search. Essentially, from there, it is an absolute comedy of errors. Right? Jesus walks right up to Mary Magdalene. We're so familiar with this story that we've lost that it's kind of funny. He walks right up to her and she's no idea who he is. Oh, you must be the gardener? Okay. And then when she finally does recognize him and understand what has happened, she runs to tell the disciples and they don't believe her. She says, well, you guys were hiding out. Jesus came. He found me and he's alive. And he told me to come and tell you. And they say, you're a crazy woman. And you know it was all condescending, like, there, there, sweetie, we're all upset. You're not yourself today. You're talking nonsense. Then it gets worse. A couple of hours later, we've got two disciples, not bivouacked in a room in Jerusalem, but getting out of Dodge altogether as soon as they can, right? Because it was, uh, the darkness came and then the Sabbath was upon them and they weren't allowed to go further than a Sabbath day journey. Sabbath is over, light has come, and they're like, we are gone. We are out of here. We're heading to Emmaus. Jesus once again comes to them. He finds them. And once again, they don't recognize him. Now, in this case, the text tells us that they were kept from recognizing him. We're not quite sure what that means, but we can tell by their conversation where their hearts and where their heads were. They say, we had hoped that he was the Messiah. Not even just like basic past tense. This is the imperfect past tense. It means ongoing. This is something that was ongoing, but it's done now. We had hoped for some time that he was the Messiah, but now it's clear the dream is dead. He is dead. That's where their hearts and their minds are, full of hopelessness and a sense of abandonment. We barely have time to scratch the surface of some of these other situations. Peter finally going stir crazy in that upper room saying, I'm going back to fishing. Who's with me? And returning to an old life. And then when Jesus appears on the shore, they've already seen him with their own eyes because he went and found them in their upper room, passed through the door because it was locked. But they see him on the shore and they're like, who's that guy? And, and then even when they're sitting around the fire, 
John includes this weird statement, No one dared ask, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Um, congrats? Like, fourth time's the charm? You finally recognize the guy with whom you spent three and a half years every moment? The, the man on whom you pinned all of your hope? And of course, we don't have time to do a real deep dive into the story of doubting Thomas. But just think about this. The one guy who saw Elijah go to heaven, the one eyewitness, said, listen, don't bother looking. He's gone. You're not going to find him. Forget it. And they said, you can't kill our hope. He's somewhere. We're going to go search for him. Then all ten eyewitnesses, all of the remaining fellow apostles of Thomas say, we did see him. He's alive. He's risen. And Thomas says, you can't take my hopelessness. I don't believe you. I won't believe you. No one could keep 50 prophets from holding on to hope and going out to find their master, Elijah. But Jesus has to come again and again and again to his own. And he's like, what do I have to do to show you that I am here, that I am he? You have to stick your finger into the, the hole that the nails made in my eye. I was kidding, but I'm here. Sure, yeah, I'll go, I'll go, go right ahead. Do it. He comes and shows us who he is. Now, why do I bring all this up? Is it to trash talk the apostles? No. Is it to say we'd be just like them? Kind of, but not really, because this story of the resurrection is not about them, and it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And what does this teach us about Jesus? It tells us that the story of us and Christ is not the story of I found Jesus. I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to encounter God. I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to come back until I find him. Had that been the case three days later, like those prophets, we would have come back and said, "Eh, I don't know where he is because I'm not looking for the right thing. No, it's the story of Jesus finding us. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. And he does that every step along the way of the story of Christ that we find in the Gospels. Every step. And I think during each and every step, we see ourselves in the apostles. And, and that's not a very flattering picture. But how does Jesus' ministry begin? A call to repentance, right? From that day on, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they say, we say, what's that? All I heard was kingdom of God in hand. Oh, did you say that uh, we can sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into kingdom and we get all this glory? I call right hand. Shotgun, ultimate shotgun. He said, when the the Son of Man arrives in Jerusalem, he'll be rejected, despised, and killed. And we said, there, there, sweetie. Sit down. You're talking crazy. You're not yourself today. He said, will you watch and pray with me so that you don't fall into temptation? Will I suffer for you in the garden? We said, oh, yeah. Yeah, Give me a five-hour energy. I'm good. I'll watch and pray with you. And immediately... It's sawn logs. He said, you will abandon me before the rooster crows. No way will I. I'll go to prison. I'll go to death with you. And at the first chance, we flipped on him. Never knew the guy. Never met him. And even after all that, even after he had gone through the valley of the shadow of death, all alone by himself, walked into the gates of death and hell all alone, and then come out triumphant. He still comes seeking us to invite us to join him in his victory. 
a victory that we had nothing to do with, except at every turn to try and turn him aside. Oh no, Lord, you won't do that. You won't lay down. You won't be crucified. It may never, may never be. We're so thick-skulled that we don't recognize him when he comes to invite us. We're, we're so stiff-necked that we say, I won't believe unless I put my finger in the hole in his hands and my hand in his side. We are so hard-hearted that we say, I had hoped, but now I find that things aren't turning out exactly the way that I wanted. Maybe, maybe this Jesus isn't so faithful. Maybe there's not so much to this, and yet he still continues to come to us. And you know, the story of us and Jesus, he sums it up saying, it's like he's the shepherd, the good shepherd, and we're the sheep. And we're not the 99 sheep in the pen that are good, that are just like, nah, feed me, everything's good, pet me. <laughs> now we're the one that's just taken off. We're off in the, the I've, I've been where, where you see people uh, tending these sheep. I can't even imagine trying to find one. Right, going up into different caves, different mountains, different going all over the place. The only way you'd ever catch up to that sheep is to follow the trail, wait until it got so tired it couldn't take another step and fell over, and then catch up with it. And that's what Jesus does. When we get tired of running from him, he finds us, he picks us up, he puts us on his shoulders, and triumphant brings us back home with him, telling us, I did all of this for you. I suffered for you. I died for you. I laid down my life for you. And then I took up my life again for you. If that's what Easter is about, then we had better be more like those company of prophets than the apostles in the early days or the first day after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's easy to stay locked in to our little rooms with each other. And, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus. And then that's it. But the problem is, I can't, I can't, I got to go out. You can't stop me, Elisha. I'm going out. I am going to go out and I am going to find him. I'm going to seek him. And as we go, Jesus said, you've got this job. Make disciples of all nations. Proclaim the gospel. The gospel of a God who would deal with and wait with and be patient with people like Peter and Thomas and me and you who would go and win the victory all by himself, go through the cross and the agony, go into the tomb and come out of the empty tomb of victor and then come to us and find us still saying, I'm not so sure about that. And yet he pursues and pursues because our God is the God of Elijah. Our God is the God that seeks and saves the lost. And Easter tells us that he is always successful. If he seeks us, he will find us. If he found you, he will never, ever let you go. If you are his, then you are his forever. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. And that is good news on this Easter morning. He is indeed risen. He is risen indeed. I like your flexibility. Let's join together and sing one more song.